What an honor to be here today. If you have your Bibles, let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let me begin reading in verse 1 of 2 Timothy chapter 3. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent fears, despisers of those that are good, having traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. What an accent work. Before I begin tonight, let me say what an incredible honor it is to be here. It's always good to be with the family of God. It's always good to be in the house of God and to enjoy the incredible presence of God that we have the privilege of enjoying every time we come. Because all it takes is two to show up and God's here. Because Jesus declared where two or three are gathered together in my name, he didn't say I might be in the midst of them or there's a possibility I'll be there, but it's I shall. He's always here. He's never violated his promise one time. It's an honor to be here tonight. It's an honor to be with the Varnum family. You, you folks are incredibly blessed. I don't know if you understand that, but I travel a whole lot. I have traveled over 100,000 miles for the last 15 years, every year. And I've been to a lot of churches and a lot of places. But there are very few places you can go, probably I can count them on one hand, to feel what you folks enjoy on a regular basis. To enjoy what you folks enjoy on a regular basis. For some reason today, we seem to think the gospel by itself is not good enough. So we've started adding a whole lot of stuff to it that's really not necessary. What saves people's life is the gospel. There's nothing more powerful than the word of God. This passage of scripture came alive in my life about five years ago. Actually, I looked in my notes today after I got to Brother and Sister Varnum's house to see when I was here last because I always have a fear of repeating myself and so I make sure I keep good notes so I don't do that. I can't remember those kind of things anymore. <laughs> so I, I just make sure I write down where I'm at. And I was here, I think in February of 14. And that May, after being here, I was invited to speak at the missionary retreat for all the missionaries of the Middle East. We met in a little city on the southwest sea coast of the country of Turkey called Ephes. 
Ephesus is the port city where all the cruise liners dock that bring tourists to Turkey to see seven churches of Asia. This is where their cruise lands, where everybody gets off, gets on their buses and travels. The hundred plus miles that it takes to make the circuit that goes, takes you to all of those cities where those seven churches existed. When we were through Friday or third Wednesday night, the missionary our regional director asked if anybody would be interested in seeing old ancient Ephesus. And everybody agreed that we'd like to do that. So they arranged for the next day for us to get on a bus and travel about seven miles to the old ancient city of Ephesus. It was actually just over the mountain from where we're at, but you had to go around it to get there. So early the next morning, we got up, got on a bus, and they took us to the old city. We, the old city of Ephesus is actually between two mountains. There's a pass that goes up from where the bay used to be over the mountain down to the backside into a valley. We start at the top of that pass. They parked the bus there and let us out. We walked down. All the other buses started at the bottom and walked up. They had mercy on us old people. And they let us walk down instead of walking up the mountain. And as we're walking through the place and looking at this old city and hearing people, we didn't have a guide. We were just walking through it on our own. But hearing other people who were there with guides and hearing what guides were telling people about this place, when we first got off, they were saying that somewhere in the vicinity where we were standing, they had actually discovered the grave of Luke. But he's actually buried at Ephesus too. We know John is buried there and Mary's buried there. Now they have fact that Luke is also buried there. We're walking down to that old city, seeing all of those old ruins. We get to the bottom of where the main road comes down over the pass. It's a marble road. You get to the bottom, and there's the old ancient library. The front of it still stands. Uh, the rest of it is destroyed by an earthquake, but the front of it still stands. And if you make a right-hand turn about couple of hundred yards down another marble road, you come out to the bottom of the town where the old amphitheater stood. And as we finally get to that point and walk into that old arena, as I'm walking into that arena, for some reason the Lord just started bringing scriptures to my mind, one right after the other. I would have never been able to put them together. I've read them multiple times, but the Lord just seemed to reach into memory and bring out things that and reminded me. And I, I remember Acts 19, that in this arena, at least 80 to maybe 120,000 people gathered one day and screamed for two hours, great is Diana. Great is dying. The reason they had screamed for two hours is because in a short period of time when Paul started preaching the gospel to John's disciples that he met there coming into town and all of a sudden revival starts hitting the city of Ephesus in a short period of time, 
the church had exploded to such a size that the inhabitants of the city were convinced they were going to lose their religion. And the priests and priestesses of the temple of Diana gathered people together, and for two hours, all they did was shout, great is Diana, great is Diana. Standing in that arena, looking at this huge amphitheater that could seat somewhere between 80 and 120,000 people, I climbed the steps on one side. When I got to the top, I walked all the way around that arena very slowly. When I got to the other side, and I'm looking here, the Lord asked me a question. And I'm standing looking at this old city. And the Lord says, what do you see, son? And I'm looking, and the only response that I can give is ruins. And the Lord's response was, I warned them. I told them I would remove their scandal, their candlestick. I tried repeatedly to get them to change, but they just didn't listen to the warning. Ephesus' problem wasn't that it lost doctrine. It wasn't that it lost a relationship with God because they knew how to try prophets and apostles and those who claimed to have certain titles. They knew how to discover whether they were real or not. But what caused them a problem was, thou hast left thy first love. That word left is not abandonment or getting something lost but it's actually the Greek word for divorce. It's apoluo. It means to divorce yourself from love. When love becomes too restrictive, when it has too many requirements, we laid aside love. We kept doctrine, we kept our relationship with God, but it was just too hard to love people. And as a result, and I started checking once I got back to my room and I found five different occasions that the Lord tried to warn this city. This passage of scripture that I have read to you is actually one of those warnings. And as I'm standing there, this passage of scripture appears before me like a billboard. And the Lord commands me to read it. So I'm standing here at the top of this Colosseum. There are probably three or 400 people in this arena besides me, and the Lord says to read it. Now, I could have wondered if people thought I'd lost my mind because I'm standing here saying, or what they can't see is what I'm seeing, but they can hear what I'm saying. But I read it. When I got through, the Lord says, all right, son, who is this passage of scripture written to? And I thought about it for a moment, and then my response was, well, Lord, that's what my world's gonna look like before you come back. And he said, read it again. And it appeared the second time. 
just like the first time. In the last days, perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of themselves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers and cotton fears, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. Then I realized this is not a prophecy of my world. This is a prophecy of what the church is going to look like at the end of time. We've been waiting to see it in the world. And while we've been watching it happen in the world, it has slipped in among us just as much as it has the world. Because here's the problem that happens with life. When you live in an environment long enough, you take on its nature. You start thinking like, acting like, looking like the environment you live in. It just becomes part of your nature because that's the norm, you understand. So if you travel the country, you can discover that the people you talk to are not, they don't sound like you do. I'm reminded every place I go, you're from Texas. And I guess there's just really something about my voice and accent that indicates that's where I'm from. I didn't do that intentionally. It's just the product of growing up in that environment. And when we start growing up in a world that is the most narcissistic world that exists, we're not careful. We'll start seeing the narcissism of our world start showing up among us. 15 years ago, I heard a question on a regular basis. The question I heard quite often, which was incredibly irritating because I heard it several thousand times. The question was, is this a heaven or hell issue? Now, I was always asked that question in reference to marriage and divorce. Is this a heaven or hell issue? If I do this, what's it going to do to me? It's going to keep me out of heaven. After looking at the question carefully, after being asked it too many times, it got real irritating. And one day it dawned on me, that's not the real question. The real question you don't have the courage to ask. The real question is, what's the least I have to do to get by? See, the real question is, draw me a line so I don't cross it because I, I don't want my life wrecked because I crossed the line. Living for God is like a marriage, the Bible says. He's espoused us to one husband. We're, we're, we're the bride. Now, I have celebrated 47 years of marriage this summer, and I can tell you emphatically today that it would have never lasted 47 years if I ever started asking questions like, honey, what's the least amount of my time you need? <laughs> honey, 
what's the least amount of affection I need to show you? Or, or, or honey, what's, what's the least number of hugs you need on a daily basis? I, I just want to know a minimum so I can at least get at least one over so I'm not in trouble. See, living for God is like finding a treasure in the field. When you find the treasure, you sell all that you have to buy the field. You don't buy the treasure, you buy stuff you don't want. You get lizards and scorpions and snakes and skunks and rats and mice and spiders and you get all kinds of junk. But there's a treasure in the field. The new question I hear, heard it just recently, is Brother Hughes, don't you think I have a right to be happy? We don't even care if we're going to heaven anymore. Now all we're concerned about is whether or not I get to be happy and I got a right to be happy and this one don't make me happy. There's gotta be somebody's gonna make me happy. At least somewhere in life, somebody's gonna connect with me. They'll, they'll give me the happiness I'm looking for. Can I ask you a question? Who come up with the dumb idea that that's a right? Where do you get a guarantee about happiness? Does the Bible guarantee you happiness? The Bible does declare that the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but it is righteousness, peace, and joy. Where? If you got the Holy Ghost, you better have righteousness in your life, you better have peace in your life, and you better have joy in your life. But I've noticed Pentecostals are not really happy people. We used to sing songs that we were happy. We're a happy people, yes we are. If you're happy and you know it. See, we used to sing those things, but but now it looks like we eat limes for breakfast, lemons for lunch. Something stole our joy. What happened to joy? Do you think somebody's going to deliver it to you or, or create it so you can have joy in your life? Let me tell you how to find joy. Go stand in front of a mirror and practice your happy face. You want to be happy? It starts inside of you, not outside of you. There's not a personal life gonna have the ability to make you happy. You want your life changed, then you start changing your life, not expecting others to change your life or make your life better. You wanna have a good relationship with God, it's not gonna happen because you want it. It's gonna happen because you spend times cultivating it and creating and working to have the relationship you want. We live in a world that is incredibly narcissistic. The only form of idol worship that I have found in the New Testament, the New Testament church has no history of chasing Baal or Astrid or Aphrodite or Diana or Zeus or Apollo. There's no history of the New Testament church ever going after those gods and trying to incorporate those gods into Christianity. 
But it does say to a church at Colossae, which this church influenced. And the sad part about this church losing its candlestick, all other six churches disappeared too. This is not the only one of the seven in ruins. All other six are in ruins. Why? Because when I quit liking people, it starts affecting everything else about my life. So if I want my life changed, and if I want a better relationship, then I've got to make a decision about what I can do to change my life. Paul said to the Colossian church, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. There is a curse that can happen with Pentecost. When you receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost and you are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins and the new birth experience takes place and you become a new creature, to that church at Colossae, Paul declared, you are delivered from the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of his dear son. You get a nature change. You don't, you're not the same person you were before you went down in that water in baptism. You are a new creation when you come up out of that water in his name. When you come up out of that water in his name, he takes a scalpel and circumcises your heart and gives you the New Testament covenant of circumcision, which is removal of the sin of a heart that happens in baptism. Now you don't have the same family. Before you went down in water, you were a sinner by nature. But when you come up out of that water, you are a sinner by choice. The nature is gone. It has been renewed. You are a new creature. And if you mess up, you can't blame nobody for it other than you enjoy doing it and it's what you chose to do. It's a choice issue. Now here's the problem. You have a throne empty in your life. You've been separated from Satan and Satan can't affect you anymore because you've been delivered from his authority and his power and you have been translated across water in the kingdom of his dear son. Now you're part of the family of God. And as a member of the family of God, now you get your life back. God don't take over your life. You don't become his puppet. He don't make you do anything. If you pray, it's because you choose to. If you fast, it's because you choose to. If you read the Bible, it's because you choose to. If you come to church, it's because you choose. He doesn't wreck your life or control your life or dominate your life. You have to choose to let him in your life. Now with that throne empty, the easiest thing in life to do is for you to crawl up on the throne of your life. And the New Testament Idol worship is worshiping self. 
I'm more important than anybody else. You don't understand my needs. I have needs, and nobody's meeting my needs. You don't know what kind of world I, you don't understand my problem. You have no clue what it's like at my house, and everything is about me, my, what I want, what I desire, and you don't think about nobody else. I've noticed when I talked to young couples today that are planning to get married, I have discovered some horrifying facts that most Pentecostal young people today do not enter marriage with the ideal it's till death do us part. They've already discovered where the exit is to get out before they ever start. So they, all, they already start with this ideal. If it doesn't work, that's narcissism. See, our world became narcissistic 10, 15 years ago. And we were horrified by its narcissism. But today, it's not just the world's having these problems. It's you and me. And when I can only talk about my problems, I remember as a kid, we had these things in church called testimony services. And we cut them out. You know why we cut them out? Because people quit testifying about what God did and started testifying about what the devil was doing. Instead of giving God glory, they talked about how bad their day had been. You used to could say to someone, how are you doing? And their response is, oh, I'm blessed. I'm living a blessed life. There's nothing more joyful than living for God. You don't believe it? Read Sister Varnum's book about her mom. They didn't complain about nothing. Didn't matter how bad life was. Don't you dare ask anybody today what, how their day's going or how they're doing. You'll be there three hours later. So all we can do today is think about me and it's so bad at my house. You know, I, I, I've discovered something about getting old. You don't have a filter anymore. When you think things, you just say it. I think I have been accused of being a little bit blunt. And I probably resemble that. <laughs> but I'm sorry. Our stupid stuff has lasted long enough. It's time we forget about all this junk that the world is influencing us with and start making decisions. Wait a minute. I, I heard a lady on the radio not long ago make a statement. Well, it's been a few years back. But she made this statement. When is, and she's a Jew, by the way, when is the church going to start affecting the world instead of the world affecting the church. This church affected its world to such an extent 
they took down the temple to Aphrodite or Diana and moved it 500 miles to the north and re-erected it because this church became so powerful that it literally changed the religion of this city of over a million people. And the temple to Diana is no longer there. Its foundation is there if you wanna go look at it, but it's been re-erected 500 miles to the north at Constantinople. That's the power that first church had. They changed their world. And we're worried about what the world's doing when in fact you and I have the power to control this world. See, we have the power to control every devil that is anywhere around us if we choose or we can, we, we can shirk our responsibilities and act like there's no, uh, nothing we can do to change or make it any different and, and there's, it's hopeless when that's a bunch of lies. This church is not weak, it's not anemic, it's not powerless, it has the power and the authority by the word of God to become everything God created it to be. It is a world changer. I don't have time to go through this list, but just look at all these characteristics. Lovers of self, covetous, lovers of money. We're more concerned about our retirement account than we are the importance of our kids and what we can do to spend more time with our families. You let, well, let's just go. Let, let me pick up blasphemers. You know what the word blaspheme means? Maybe I'll give you a Greek word. It's blasphemia. You know what our closest word to it is? Gossip. You know what research says? If you have a Facebook page, you increase your chance of divorce by 35% just having a page. Just spending your time there. 35%. 80% of all divorce decrees filed in America mention Facebook. average person spends two or three hours a day because they're addicted to it and they can't exist without it. Let me ask you a question. Let, let, let me, matter of fact, when you do this number right here, what's that called? A what? Is that real loud? A what? Hmm. Who called it that? Where'd that name come from? You think somebody in church called it that? When your phone has more pictures of you than anybody else, then we don't understand why we can't get along. Then we don't understand why there are family problems. Then we don't understand why there's chaos. What if you spent half of the time you spend on Facebook with FaceTime with your kids or your husband or your wife? Without an instrument, I mean face to face. And the other 50% with FaceTime with Jesus Christ. I wonder what your world would be like. See, I, our narcissism 
has invaded us and we don't even realize why, how it's here. And, and how many people have died in the last year falling off cliffs because they're trying to do a selfie at the edge? How many? A, a, a newlywed just a few months ago fell off, killed himself because I got to get close to the edge and take this dumb picture. Can I ask you a question? Do you really think you're important enough for somebody to care what you're eating or where you're eating at? But does it really matter? So you're blaming the world, Hollywood, Satan, for causing all the chaos around your family, when the fact is, it's none of that. The fact is, we just disconnected. The fact is, we live two different worlds. The fact is, we don't spend time in the presence of people we used to. See, the problem with technology is, it has no danger signs. I, I talked to you about that a few years ago. There's no warning. So you do things you never think about. Blasphemy. Covenant breakers. False accusers. Let's go with the last one. Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of... Now, it didn't say they didn't love God, did it? What did it say? Love pleasure more than loving God. I'm probably going to cause you a little bit of problem here. I'm sorry if I do. Pleasure has the power to destroy you. Scientists we're trying to find out how the brain works. Because the brain is encased in bone, you can't study it. The only way you can study a brain is if it's dead and you can take it out and do a biopsy or do slices of the brain to see how the layers and tissues look, but the person has to be dead. So all the, all the study of the brain had to be done very delicately so they developed these electrodes that were 10 times smaller than a human hair. They would coat it so that the electrode was coated on the outside, the very tip would be exposed. And they could insert the electrode in the brain of an animal and send very minor electrical impulses down the electrode and watch the stimulus and see what it, it triggered in the animal, and that's how they studied the brain. They had 50-something animals in one particular study. They were studying the limbic system, which is the bottom part of your brain. Controls your heart, controls your need for food, water. Fear, anger reside there. Your sex drive resides there. And, and as they're studying it, they learn how to make animals hungry by just a minute little 
electrical charge. The electrode's so small it didn't damage the brain. And so they could insert it, send electrical impulse, watch the reaction, and, and then record the reaction. And they were studying all 59, so they had a big enough study group to see that they're accurate in everything they're doing. By accident one day, the scientists got the electrode in the wrong place. When they sent the electrical impulse down the electrode, instead of making the animal hungry or thirsty or terrified or angry, it laid down in the cage and just sprawled out. They'd seen that same behavior with heroin, with meth, with crack, with crank, all these drugs they had given them. They'd seen that behavior, so they knew what the behavior was. But they couldn't eat, they couldn't terrify. They could bring a predatory animal around and they just lay there and look. So they took an x-ray of where they had the electrode and discovered it was just a few centimeters in the wrong place. Actually, millimeters, because it was a very small brain they were using, this rat. They weren't off by much. But they discovered this little area of the brain. It's called the pleasure center. It's the nucleus accumbens. It's located right between your ears and right behind your eyes, right above the brain stem. When you experience pleasure, that's the part of your brain that releases a flood of dopamine that gives you the high that you experience. So whatever pleasure you experience, where it's a Hershey's chocolate kiss or Hershey bar or just a scoop of sugar. Whatever it is that causes pleasure, that area of the brain stimulated. They relocated the electrodes in all 59 animals and put it in the same spot and discovered all of them reacted just alike. Now what they did discover was they taught the animals how to punch a button and feed themselves or another button get water. They had different colors so they knew how to get their own water or get their own food. And then they taught them how to touch a button and stimulate pleasure. All 59 animals died of starvation because they'd rather punch that pleasure button than to eat or drink or anything else. And it got so bad at the end when one pleasure episode was about to end, they'd punch it again quickly. And so they were just constantly punching that little button at the end just so rapidly because the brain got so engrossed in this, this high euphoria that it had to have it over and over and over and over again. Now, the nucleus accumbens doesn't have a conscience because your conscience is located in your frontal lobe. So when you experience pleasure, your nucleus accumbens sends a message to your frontal lobe. There are thousands of pathways. It sends a message to your frontal lobe letting you know, letting your conscience know what the pleasure was you experienced. See, God created it so pleasure would never destroy you. 
So it runs it by the conscience. The conscience analyzes it. Oh, that's, that's just a piece of chocolate. Might cause you to gain a few pounds, but the other, no harm there. You, you, you can enjoy that. The only problem is, if you ever do that under stress, your brain records that. You're under stress a second time, and you pick up that piece of chocolate and put it in the mouth, and the brain enjoys that because it kind of relieves the stress. It doesn't take very long for the brain to start saying, hey, that hurts your kisses. That, 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 that covers a whole lot of problems. So when stress shows up, you start craving you start looking for it because you, you there, there was nothing tell your, your brain said it's okay and it's so you just keep doing it and you take it to an extreme. However, what if you do something that violates your conscience? What happens then? Well, the nucleus of kitten is not connected to the frontal lobe, so it has to send a message. When the frontal lobe looks at that message and says, "Ooh, stop." Danger, don't, harmful. And you look around you and say, nobody's going to get hurt. This is okay. The nerve that brought the message gets unplugged. Your brain has a bit called plasticity and that nerve is literally disconnected from the dendrite it was connected to. So now, that pathway doesn't exist. If you experience the same kind of pleasure again and the conscience tries to warn you, stop, don't do that. And you ignore it, you unplug that nerve as well. You keep doing that for about nine months and there won't be one pathway from pleasure to conscience. At that point, you don't have a conscience and you start doing things you regret. You step across lines you'd have never stepped across before. And then when the shock of your event actually catches up with you, if you haven't destroyed your conscience so much that it doesn't even bother you and you think it's okay, when, when, you're, when your brain finally catches up and realizes, no, this... I, I just caused a major problem. Then you're going to ask yourself a question. How did I get here? I never intended to walk down this road. How did I get here? Because loving pleasure become more important than loving God. So I disconnect. Now let me walk into some very sensitive areas. A child's brain doesn't connect the frontal lobe until somewhere between 12 and 18 years of age. Children don't have a conscience. It's not hardwired in until puberty's nearly over. Their parents have to be their conscience. Your children don't need you as a friend you do not need to step down to their level. They don't need your friendship. Matter of fact, your children cannot be your friend until they become an adult. When they become an adult, they can be your friend. But when they're children, 
You are still the parent and you've got to take over that role because if you don't, you'll destroy their life and probably a whole lot of other lives along with it because you're trying to be friends. They don't need your friendship. They need your conscience. Victoria has no secrets. Let that thing show up at your house. Let a boy in puberty get a hold of it. When the brain should be finding those nerves, should be trying to track the dendrite in the front lobe to connect to. When it starts experiencing pleasure without something to stop it, instead of connecting to the front lobe, it reroutes itself back to pleasure. And so when a message is sent, it just gives a loop. So our children today are becoming addicted on a much higher basis than any other society that has existed. Research says they're sliding their finger across an iPad or across a cell phone. Opening it up with the touch of a finger releases the same neurotransmitters in the brain that heroin does. Matter of fact, research says today, if you charge your phone by your bed, you are addicted to it. And it starts affecting conscience, relationships. See, pleasure is not your friend. But that's what we major in. See, we're adrenaline junkies. We gotta have pleasure. If you go down the road to Disney World or Disney, whatever its name, which, which ride do you have to wait the longest line for? The little boats that float through the water are the ones that go inside a cage that terrify you when you come out. It's got a sign that says, don't, don't enter these if, if you got heart problem, blood pressure problem, pregnancy. There's a whole list of diseases. Don't, don't come in because it could be a danger. Which one has the long line? So we like the thrill of death. And so we have addicted ourselves to pleasure. And that's a sign of the coming of the Lord. You see, when we get so addicted to pleasure, we lose our love for God. Our, our, our relation, we, we're not even looking for his coming. We're not even thinking about him coming back. We're not even anticipating him coming back. 30 years ago, when you talked to Pentecostals on a regular basis, they were always talking about the coming of the Lord. They were always talking about the Lord's coming soon. And, and, and there was prophecies and tongues interpretation that, that shared that information with us on a regular basis. Most of our young people, they don't know what the rapture means. Why? Because we got addicted to pleasure. And we let pleasure start dominating our life. It's, it's, it didn't replace God. It just become more consuming. Why? Because you get the conscience out. And there comes a time you have no conscience. By definition, you're now a sociopath. So if you don't have a conscience, you'll hurt people and never even bother you. 
So you don't create an affair in a moment's time. Adultery don't happen in just a day or two. You see, adultery requires your conscience saying, no, stop, don't, bad, harmful. And you keep ignoring the warning and your brain cannot stand confusion. So it literally unplugs the nerve that's bringing confusion. I have an older brother. His name is Charles. He's 18 months older than me. He's blind in his right eye. It's a perfectly healthy eye. But at two years of age, he fell out of a high chair, landed on the side of his face, and it crossed his eye. In the 50s, there was no way to correct it. It wasn't until he was almost 14 years of age that they were able to do surgery and, and, and tighten the muscle up and pull it back in place. But because one eye was looking one direction, the other eye was looking a different direction, the brain couldn't stand the confusion of signal. It literally turned that eye off. And that eye is perfectly healthy, but it doesn't see anything because the brain shut off the confusion so that it wouldn't confuse anything. We, we don't fall into junk because we didn't know. See, God made sure you had a warning sign. He put a conscience in you. It's called your human spirit. The spirit of a man is a candle of the Lord searching the inward parts of the belly. Nobody knows the man but the spirit of the man. That's your conscience. Your human spirit is your conscience. God put it in every human being. He's got a pulpit to preach in. He will talk to us through our conscience on a regular basis if we listen. But if we keep violating it and turning it off and ignoring it, then it unplugs itself so that God has no access to speak. And when God has no access to speak, pornography hijacks the brain faster than any other thing that could exist. Faster than heroin, it, it does it quicker than crank or crack or, or any of these new synthetics they come with. None of them hijack the brain as quickly as pornography does. You know what's sad? 15 years ago, less than 3% of females were addicted to pornography. Today, 47% of females are addicted to pornography and it's against their nature. Why? Because you keep handing these little devices to people without a conscience and they find it real quickly and they'll all of a sudden get addicted to something they don't even know how they're addicted to. So we've let our world convince us our kids are not safe. So we're giving them things to make sure they can stay safe but we don't realize what we're giving them has the power to literally destroy Now, some of you are looking like, at me like I'm an old man on a soapbox. Well, I am an old man. There's no doubt about that. We can ignore it, or we can start paying attention. Wait a minute. Is this thing controlling? You know what Steve Jobs told the engineers who created the first smartphone? You know what his instructions were? 
He said, we want to create a device that people think they own, but eventually it owns them. That's the whole philosophy behind what you have in your hand. And when you really look at it, well, I started reading this stuff about where your phone's plugged in. So I don't have Facebook, never have. I'm not about to get it. I think it's the dumbest thing anybody could ever do, but that's just my opinion. You know, it, it, it's a rob, it robs you of time. Yeah, it has a whole lot of good things. But you know, McDonald's throws away really good hamburgers. Do you, you see anybody crawling in the dumpster to get, find them a hamburger to eat? <laughs> so we, we've, we've let things in that's going to cause us lots of problems. Then we're going to get to a place where we're going to argue about where the Bible's right or wrong, whether, you know, the, the, the world, society says it's this way. Well, why isn't it, Mom, Dad? Explain why. See, homosexuality is not genetic. Matter of fact, just two weeks ago, a news flashed up on my phone that said the scientists have discovered there is no gene responsible for homosexuality. They haven't discovered it. It doesn't exist. If they had to discover it, you'd be well aware of it at this point. It's a learned behavior. It's not, it's not something somebody's born with. You develop it. But our world's lying to us. And because we haven't kept our conscience pure, we let stuff dull it, then it's easy when she walks by and starts talking to you about, my, you look nice today. And the conscience tells you, don't go there. And, but the, the flesh says, why not? There's no harm done here. And so the brain unplugs the nerve. Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Having form of God. Looking like God on the outside is a little translation. Looking like God on the outside, but denying the power and the authority of the Word of God. Now, I've got good news for you tonight. You can get your conscience back. They discovered that too. You don't know how to get your conscience back? You really ready for it? Quit. Don't do it again. That's all you got to do. Just stop the behavior. You don't need therapy. You don't need somebody talking to you on a regular basis. Just make up your mind you're not doing it no more. Get your calendar. And if you get nine months of X's without ever participating in the behavior again, then you will never have a problem with the behavior again. You'll get your conscience back. But it takes nine months. Now, isn't that strange, nine months? How long did it take you to get in this world? So you want to rebirth your brain and your conscience? Then, then just make a decision for the next nine months, I'm going to control me. I'm not going to let my flesh control my life or dominate my life or dictate what I do or how I think. I'm going to take control of my flesh. And when I start taking control of it and I choose to do these things, then my life starts changing. Now, you can also accelerate the process. There's two things you can do. 
first one is to pray. Because 12 minutes of prayer on a daily basis creates new dendrites and new synaptic connections. So just pray. Don't take a lot of time. 12 minutes a day. Third thing you can do is fast. Fasting takes control of the brain faster than anything else you can do. So if you want your conscience back and you want your life back and you're tired of the merry-go-round and, 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 and thinking you've got this thing conquered and it shows back up and you think you've got it conquered and it shows back up and you think you've got it conquered and it shows back up and you just think, I can't do it, then if you just start planning how to fast and pray and just stop the behavior nine months down the road, that problem won't be there anymore because God's power is more powerful than anything this world can throw at us. So if we start doing what we did in the beginning, we'll start seeing the same results we saw in the beginning because it still works just like it did originally. And when you start letting the word of God become the direction of life, life starts changing. Please stand, I'm through. Life is your choice. You want a successful life? There's nobody going to keep you from it but you. You want a more spiritual life? And by the way, let, let me point something out. Hughes' opinion, okay? Reading the book of Galatians and several of other of Paul's writings is my opinion that spirituality is not defined by how much you pray, how much you witness, how much you read the Bible, how much you come to church, or how much you speak in tongues. True spirituality is defined by how often you fight that flesh you went in and conquer it. You want to be a spiritual man? Then you go stand in front of that mirror every day and you look at that mirror and say, me and you are at war. You're my enemy. You're not my friend. You're going to wreck my life. That's not happening. You want to be a jerk? I'm not going to let you be a jerk. You're not going to destroy me. You're not going to wreck nobody else's life. I can't see you when I walk away. I'm looking at you now, so you listen to me. You're not destroying nobody's life. You're the problem. Not a devil, not people. You're the problem. And I'm going to conquer you. So before I go to bed tonight, we're going to have this same conversation again, and I'm going to ask who won. And if by chance you win today, then tomorrow you don't get breakfast and you don't get lunch, and you don't get supper. And if that don't get your attention, the next day you don't get breakfast, you don't get lunch, and you don't get supper. And if that don't get your attention, we'll go for day number three. And somewhere along the line, you're going to realize you're not controlling me. I'm going to control you because you're not wrecking my life. You're not destroying me. I can have the greatest life I want. I can become as successful as I want to be, but I've got to make a choice to do it. You want your life back? Get your conscience involved. Get back to the basics of life. Get back to letting God speak to us. Keep that conscience pure. Let the Holy Ghost talk. When it talks, don't ignore it or don't turn it off or don't avoid it or deny it. 
or act like you didn't speak. When God speaks, listen. So you don't need someone telling you what to do. God's inside your heart. If you've got the Holy Ghost, and I guarantee you, he won't let you do something he don't let me do. If he does, he's changed. He don't change. So if you're doing something that's contrary to the word of God, it's not because God gave you permission. Oh, he will if you take your conscience out. Because I've had five men tell me that because their faithfulness, their fasting, their support of the church, their tithing, their offerings, never missing church service, given the mission, that because of 25 years of faithfulness, God rewarded them with the privilege of having an affair. I've heard that five times. The will of God will never violate the word of God. If this word says no, it's no. You're not gonna argue around it, you're gonna argue a different outcome when God says no, it's no. And on the door of my refrigerator is a sign for my grandkids to see and it says no is a complete sentence. Don't need anything else. It's a complete sentence. No. <laughs> but nobody's gonna tell me no. So we're a bunch of spoiled brats is what we are. And we let narcissism creep in first. And because we become selfish and self-centered, now we're thinking it's okay to enjoy the pleasure episode. Is it? Bow your heads. Gracious Father, thank you tonight for your incredible word. Lord Jesus, I pray tonight you'd step in the heart of every one of our lives. I can hide from everybody in this room, but I can't hide from you. Lord, I pray tonight that you'd step into our hearts and preach to us so that we, as your children, can become the vessel of honor you created us to be. Not controlled by the flesh or the world that we live in, but controlled by your presence and your spirit that lives inside of us. So Jesus, I pray today that your spirit would have the, the preeminence of our life, that your spirit would take control of our lives. We give you permission, Jesus, to step into our pulpits and preach and preach loud so that when no shows up, I don't try to violate the no so that I can enjoy pleasure, but I listen to what your word and your spirit is saying to me so that my life is not wrecked. You're not desiring I have a bad life or controlled life or manipulated life. You're just desiring that I have a life that doesn't have chaos in it. And when I listen to your presence and your spirit, there will be chaos in my life because you never bring chaos. You're not the author of confusion. You're the author of peace. And your word tells us that our relationship with you is based upon righteousness, doing what's right. It's based upon peace, understanding your peace and having your peace in our life. And it's based upon joy when we learn how to be joyful in whatever circumstance we're in, that we can pray like Paul. And whatsoever state I am in, therewith I am content. I've learned how to be abased. I've learned how to abound. I've learned how to suffer and be in need and want or to have it all. But I have learned to be content with where I'm at in life. Help us tonight, Jesus, to recognize that we've let our world begin to turn our conscience off 
and let's do everything we can today, Jesus, to, to open our hearts to you so that we can hear your voice as you speak to us. You put in us everything necessary to be successful. You put your spirit in us. That gives me the power to become anything I choose to be because you are the creator of life and that creative power lives inside of me. So Jesus, I don't want to rob my life of everything that you have to offer me because my flesh is trying to convince me that it's okay or there's no problem with my behavior. But let me continue the battle of that flesh every day of my life. I will never conquer it until the day they plant me in the grave, Jesus, or unless you come. I, I will always be fighting this flesh I live in. It is my enemy. It is not my friend. So I'm going to make a decision today, Jesus. It's gonna, this will be a daily battle every day of my life. I'm going to get up every day standing in front of that mirror saying, flesh, you're not wrecking my world today. You're not destroying me today. You're not taking me down a path I don't want to go down today. You're not going to cause chaos. I will control you because greater is he that is in me than you. And I will allow his presence in me to control you. You will not control me or dominate my life. I worship you today, Jesus. I worship you today, Jesus. You are worthy.